0: So this morning we begin a series on the book of Revelation. Yay! And I want to begin, first of all, by thanking all of you who took part in that survey that I've been pushing for the last couple of weeks. Very briefly, the question that I asked you, one question was, which of five basic approaches to reading Revelation do you most identify with? These five approaches come to us from scholar Michael Gorman and his excellent and very accessible book, Reading, response, uh, reading Revelation responsibly. I actually finished it this morning. It's fantastic. I have listed that book and several others that we are um, consulting and commentaries and so forth because I thought you might be interested in the Bible app uh, live event. And those will help you go a little deeper than we can possibly get this morning. If you do not have the Bible app, I encourage you to go get it on your phone or your device and uh, download it. And when you open it up, turn on your location services, then you click on the little... I think it's now referred to as a hamburger at the bottom of the three lines, uh, and that will give you a few other options. Click on events, and we should pop right up. You're going to find lots of resources. I put a lot in there for this week to get us started, questions for further discussion, and a whole lot of stuff about ECC and getting involved, and I encourage you to do that. <clears throat> in addition, if you're a life group, if you're a part of a life group, and you're wanting to work through Revelation with us, we recommend... Um, two books by NT Wright uh, Revelation for Everyone is his commentary for lay people and Re- the Revelation study guide that goes along with it you do not have to use them both together you can use one or the other but it's whatever you want to do but those are both available for you and now <clears throat> those five approaches to Revelation so I apologize I didn't put these in the survey because I didn't want <laughs> I didn't want to have you to have to go what does that even mean Uh, They have names, each of these have a name, so I'm going to simplify it a bit, but here are Michael Gorman's five basic approaches to reading and understanding Revelation. The first one is predictive futurist. That is, Revelation is a code that predicts the future, it was not fully understood by the original audience and it won't really be revealed until all these events take place. The second one, preterist. Revelation is still a code, uh, but it speaks of the past. Everything it speaks of happened in the first century. The word preterist comes from a Latin word that means the past. Third, this one is called poetic or theopoetic. We'll stick with theopoetic. That is, revelation is a poetic is poetic in language and it expresses ultimate truths about God, evil, and history. Fourth, theopolitical. Slash prophetic, no, theopolitical, yeah, I'm getting confused by the monitor. Theopolitical, Revelation is political protest against the first century Roman Empire in a time of persecution. And fifth, pastoral prophetic, Revelation is anchored in the past, but is meant to speak to all generations since. The imagery, in that case, both challenges and comforts uh, us by giving us a heavenly perspective of the events in our world throughout all of time. Four or five of you contacted me and said you didn't pick one of these because um, none of them seem to fit what you think about it. Or you said you combined a couple. Um, those are the rebels in our midst. And <clears throat> or you just said I really don't have an understanding of Revelation. I, I've never really engaged in it for whatever reason. All those are helpful. All those are fine. Of the 61 people who did take part in the survey, no one picked number two. That Revelation was a code but all of it has already happened in the past. Here's what the rest of the responses looked like. 46% that's number one, the, the big green one on the right there. 46% of you picked uh, the predictive futurist. 10% uh, picked the, the uh, theopoetic. Uh, theo I was going to say theopathetic, but it's theopoetic. <laughs> Fortunately, I won't have to say that again anymore today. Um, 5% chose the theopolitical. Um, and then 39% chose number five, the pastoral prophetic. So as you can see, there are a fair amount of differences in the way people in this room or online view the book of Revelation. Uh, I think it could be divisive, so we're not doing Revelation. I'm just going to go to the Psalms. No, just kidding. But I do invite us all, whatever our view might be, as we go through this series, and it may take us quite a while, I invite you to practice open-mindedness, open-handedness, and respect and generosity toward people who see things differently. I know that as I have engaged in a lot of preparatory study for this series, that I have learned several new things, and I think, uh, I know you will too if you can practice these things. So let's begin by acknowledging that revelation, and it's revelation, not revelations, plural, revelation, is a strange challenging, and sometimes frightening book to read, let alone truly understand it. Some of us stay away from Revelation because we think it has nothing to do with us. Others stay away because it makes us uncomfortable, fearful, or confused. We, we think it's a book about the end of the world, and we'd rather not think about the end of the world, or we're certain if we try, we simply won't understand it. Now, if that is the case for you, if that, one of those uh, things describes who you are and your relationship with the book of Revelation, you are not alone. <coughs> Several <coughs> excuse me, well-known people from the past have similar feelings. Uh, 19th century philosopher Frederick Nietzsche referred to Revelation as, quote, the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all recorded history. Playwright George Bernard Shaw said it was, quote, the curious record of the visions of a drug addict." Martin Luther, the 16th century church reformer, said of it, and I picture him saying this rather gruffly. Uh, I, I would do a German accent, but I would butcher it, so let's go with this. He said that it is neither apostolic nor prophetic. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Again, they are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is, to say nothing of keeping it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. He didn't mince words. <clears throat> but I actually beg to differ with Martin Luther. Christ is both taught and known beautifully in the book of Revelation from the very first line. Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 through 8 is the introduction to the book. Verses 1 through 3 are a bit of a prologue with verses 4 through 8 being a combination of a salutation of the letter and a doxology. In verses 1 through 8 of the first chapter of the book of revelation we are we learn several important things about how we are to read and interpret this book tells us where it's headed so revelation 1 1 through 3 the revelation from jesus christ which god gave him to show his servants what must soon take place he made it known by sending his angel to his servant john who testifies to everything he saw that is the word of god and the testimony of jesus christ Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. In these first three verses, we are told that Revelation is a combination of three kinds of literature apocalyptic, prophecy, and to a lesser degree that you can notice it less obvious, is a letter. Apocalyptic, prophecy, and a letter. The first word in the Greek text of Revelation, the first word in the last book of the Bible, is the word we translate as Revelation. It is the Greek word, apocalypsis. Some people pronounce it apocalypsis, but that sounds like a serial, so we're going to go with apocalypse. To lay bare, to disclose something previously hidden or unknown. To disclose something previously hidden or unknown. So, to start with, apocalypse is not a word, as we have come to hear it, that refers to the end times. It is a word that simply means to reveal something, to uncover something. It is a word that also, <clears throat> from this time on, came to refer to a type of literature that was common among Jews and Christians about 200 years before Jesus and about 100 years after. Apocalyptic. We find several features of apocalyptic literature in Revelation. So, for example, it is characterized by things made known symbolically to the author via an intermediary. An angel is listed here. The Greek word translated in the NIV as made it known means to make something known using symbols. So what we will read is not to be taken literally. These are not literal events that have been allegorized. They are realities that are communicated to John and to us symbolically. <clears throat> Apocalyptic literature also has a rather pessimistic view of the current reality. It's a pessimistic view of the current reality, but, and this is important, it has a very hopeful view of imminent and uh, impending future. It has a pessimistic view of reality, current reality, but it has a hopeful view of the future. John tells us in verse 1 that God has made these things known to show us what must soon take place. What must soon take place. There are things in this letter that were very much current to the people who first read it, and there are things in this letter that are further off in the future. The truth is, however, if we want to be honest with ourselves, No less than 17 times in the book of Revelation, 17 times, the readers are told, either by Jesus, John, or something, that these things will happen soon, or that Jesus is coming soon. 17 times. Clearly, there are things in this book, if you've read it, you will know this, that have not happened yet. What are we to do with this soon language? couple of things we're going to explain it as best we can when it's clear that something else might be going on and where it's not clear where it makes us uncomfortable we're going to just sit in the tension and let it be what it is as we walk through the study in one sense what it was soon to take place is not the end of the world or the end times but the impending increase of persecution these christians were about to face what was soon certainly early on, is that persecution is about to pick up. Suffering is about to pick up. So right off the bat, we know that Revelation is apocalyptic. It will reveal some things, and we know that it is written to people in that day about things that were soon to take place, persecution and suffering. Verse 3 of uh, John chapter 1 says that those who hear these words and take them to heart will be blessed because the time is near. Here we go again. The word translated um, as time there does not refer to chronological time. It is the Greek word kairos. It means the time when things are brought to crisis, the opportune time for decisiveness. Now's the time. That's how we use it. Verse 3 also contains the first of seven blessings or benedictions in Revelation, and in that blessing we learn that Revelation is also a work of prophecy. What is prophecy? Scholar Michael Gorman sums up the nature of biblical prophecy when he says that, and I'll quote and this quote is also in the Bible app Live Event, Prophecy in the biblical tradition is not exclusively or even primarily about making pronouncements and predictions concerning the future. Rather, prophecy is speaking words of comfort and or challenge on behalf of God to the people of God in their concrete historical situation. Every word in that sentence matters. Revelation speaks prophetic words of comfort and challenge on behalf of God to the seven churches it addresses in their historical situation. We have to start there. That is not to say that there is nothing in this book about the future. There is. But references to the future in Revelation are not there. So, that modern day readers can determine when certain things are going to happen and make direct correlations between current events and symbols John gives us. We're going to see more of this as we work our way through the book, but it needs to be stated from the start that when and where Revelation speaks to the future, it is not to be used as a calendarizing tool, a way to predict dates and timelines. After all, in Mark 13, where Jesus himself launches into quite the bit of apocalyptic teaching, he finishes remarks saying this in verses 32 and 34. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. We are not to use revelation to calendarize. ...or to predict the future, but we are to keep watch and to stay alert... ...as if it all could come happening at any time, at any moment. Revelation is apocalyptic and prophetic. It reveals the words of challenge and comfort to God's people in crisis. And in that sense, it is timeless. Revelation is also a letter, pastoral, circular letter. Letters in that time when very few people could read would be read publicly... It would be someone chosen for that task, and they would, in a sense, perform the letter. They would come to the local congregations, they would read it aloud. The one who reads the letter to the churches will be blessed, John says. So will those who hear it and take it to heart. It is a letter to be read in the congregation. To take these words to heart is to understand them and to obey them. Revelation is a letter written to people who did not have to do the kind of research you and I have to to understand what it's about. They did not have to do that kind of research to figure it out. It was a form of literature. It was a genre they were familiar with. They understood. It was a part of their culture. And these words were primarily directed to those first readers. And as we said on more than one occasion, and we will say again, the Bible and Revelation along with it, was written for us, but it was not written to us. It was written for us, but it was not written to us. It spoke to its first hearers, its first readers, and through them, it can speak to the church at all times. But we must begin with what it meant, as best we can tell, to those who first read it and received it. Then John moves from the prologue to the salutation, or the greeting part of the letter, chapter 1, verse 4. to the seven seven churches in the province of Asia. John, according to most scholars, is not the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. John was, after all, a common name, as it is today. There is some disagreement about this. There's some disagreement about a lot of things in the book of Revelation. But John never claims to be the apostle, and he gives us very few details, if any, about who he is. So maybe it's John who wrote the Gospel, maybe it's not. Either way, it doesn't change a thing about how we read it and everything has been written. The letters addressed to the seven churches in the province of Asia, there were more than seven churches in Asia. The number seven has been chosen not only because these are probably churches that John was familiar with, had some relationship with, but also because seven is a symbolic number. It is a symbolic number for completeness, for perfection, for wholeness. We're going to encounter that number over and over again. This is John's way ...of addressing the whole church in Asia Minor, uh, Minor, modern-day Turkey. He knows that when this gets sent to those individual churches, they're going to share it with other churches. The seven churches speaks of the wholeness of the message for all churches. Next, the letter gets going with a full but traditional greeting... ...not unlike what we would hear in one of Paul's or Peter's letters in the New Testament. Verse 4 again, last part of verse 4 grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth this section is loaded God is declared to be the one who is and who was and who is to come this speaks to God's power it speaks to God's sovereignty God's presence and it will come back to us again it'll be echoed Later, in verse 8, said a little differently. John sends us grace and peace from God and from the seven spirits before his throne. What is that? There's a disagreement. Surprise? It could be translated as, as some of your Bibles have this as a footnote, the sevenfold spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. Or it could actually refer to the seven angels that Jesus addresses when he sends this this letter, these proclamations to the churches. Both ideas have merit, and I have gone back and forth all week on which one I think it is. On Tuesday and Thursday, I thought, well, these are the angels. On Wednesday and Friday, I said, no, this is the Trinity. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. This morning, as I reviewed everything, I went back and forth again. However, it's not totally necessary to know or to understand and nail this all down in order to continue to move forward in the book of Revelation. Would you trust me? We need to keep moving forward. Finally, John offers us grace and peace from Jesus Christ as well. And then he refers to him with three important titles. The Faithful Witness, the Firstborn from the Dead, and the Ruler of the Kings of the Earth. Each of these titles are key to how Revelation will unfold. This book is both a revelation from Jesus and a revelation of Jesus, about Jesus. And as we make our way through the book, Jesus will be revealed as faithful witness, as firstborn from the dead, the resurrected one, and as the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is his death, this is his resurrection, and his ascension. Now just for a moment, I want you to imagine people under the thumb of a Roman emperor who thinks he's divine, who is known as lord and king and ruler of all. Could there be any more in-your-face proclamation than the one that pulls the rug out from under Caesar and names the risen Lord Jesus as the King of kings over the whole earth? And why does John do this? Because his readers needed this kind of encouragement. They needed hope for the church in distress and crisis. And the crisis, as we will see, is not only the threat of persecution coming from outside, it is also the threat of accommodation coming from within. As we said, words of prophecy and revelation offer both comfort to those in pain and challenge to those who might be modifying their faithfulness a little bit, snuggling up to power, getting in bed with the beast, playing it safe with the empire, trying to fit in with those elements of the culture that stand opposed to true discipleship and worship. Accommodation. Accommodation is nice if you're looking for a good hotel. It is something else altogether if you attempted to accommodate your faith out of fear of the emperor. In the empire. And then John delivers a doxology that celebrates not just who Jesus is, but what Jesus has done for us. Verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. By his death on the cross, Christ has demonstrated his love for us and freed us from our sins. Christ has freed us from the punishment for our sins, and Christ has freed us from our enslavement to our sins. Christ has freed us from punishment for our sins, and he has freed us from enslavement to our sins. We are forgiven, and we are set free to live transformed and ever-transforming lives as followers of Jesus. In the words of our ECC Touchstones, we have been welcomed by Christ's love. We have been freed from our sins by transformation into his image. And that picture that he gives us of us as a kingdom and priest, or a kingdom of priests, reaches all the way back to Exodus in the Old Testament, chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, and God's promise to his people that if they will keep this covenant with him, they would be for him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They would be for the world the very presence of God. John and Jesus will often quote from or allude to Old Testament uh, passages throughout Revelation, estimates about how much that happens very widely because it's not always easy to tell. But there are anywhere from 400 to over a 1,000 allusions, parallels, and quotes from the Old Testament in Revelation. One estimate said that virtually every verse in Revelation has an allusion to the Old Testament. And then in the first three chapters, the ratio is actually two Old Testament verses to every one verse from Revelation. In other words, John borrows from the Old Testament a lot. In verse 7, John jumps right into the thick of these Old Testament allusions and quotations. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. John calls back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10, and contained within that Daniel passage is a reference to someone who looked, quote, looked like a son of man. A son of man. That's a phrase that only meant, in its original time, a human being. Someone looked like a human being. But it became a title for the Messiah along the way. We will encounter it again next week and maybe say more about it then. John then chops up the passage from Zechariah, however. He edits God's words. You can see it in where, in English, the quotations begin and end. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, end quotation. John adds the phrase, and all peoples on earth, begin quotation, will mourn because of him. In Zechariah 12.10, it is the inhabitants of Jerusalem who will mourn the one they have pierced. But John changes it. Now it is all peoples of the earth. will mourn this is way bigger than Zechariah prophesied what are they mourning in Zechariah the inhabitants of Jerusalem mourn as if they have lost an only child or a firstborn son but in Revelation John tweaks things a bit yes all the peoples of the earth will mourn but Rome as those who pierced him Jesus will mourn in a different way when Christ returns They will mourn and lament because they were the ones who pierced him. They were the ones who put him to death. This speaks to John's readers of judgment. And let's face it, judgment day is inevitable. It's always a good sermon. We can throw a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger. We're done with you, though. We're done. In verse 8, God speaks. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. God echoes what John said back in verse 4 and identifies himself as the one who is and who was and who is to come. So similar things were said about the Greek gods, but those statements more often than not spoke about The changelessness, the unchanging nature, the immutability of those gods. So, for example, it is said of Zeus, it was said of Zeus, who was the king of all the gods on Mount Olympus. Zeus was, Zeus is, Zeus will be. But it is said of the Almighty God, the God of Israel, not just that he was and is, but that he will come. He will act on our behalf. He will rescue us. One more thing. Here in verse 8, God refers to himself as the Almighty. It's a very common way to refer to God in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, however, it only pops up ten times. Nine of those ten times are in the book of Revelation. Why? Because in these opening eight verses of the book of Revelation, John wants us to know, wants his first readers to know, That the Almighty, the one who is and was and is to come, is still on the throne. And in Christ, he has won the victory. Christ is the faithful witness who has gone before us into death. Christ is the one, though dead, rose again as the firstborn from the dead. through His resurrection. Christ is the ruler of the kings, the Caesars of the earth. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Maybe... Some of you need to hear these words today, too. Maybe you are facing painful and frightening realities. Illness, loss, grief, fear, anxiety, depression, broken relationships, loss of income, uncertain futures. God is Alpha and Omega. God is beginning and end. And Christ has gone before you into suffering and death and he has emerged in resurrection and he is victorious. Before John gets going with the vision of things to come and all their challenges, he states clearly that God is with them. He states clearly that God is for them. And he states clearly that in the end, God will win and with him, so will we. Would you pray with me as we close? God, we thank you for our brother John and these words that have been preserved for us, even though many didn't like them down through the years and tried to squash them. We pray that as we seek to walk through and learn and listen to your spirit and engage thoughtfully and carefully with these words, that you would teach us what you want us to to know and understand, and that you would give us the faith to entrust those things we don't understand back to you. Help us to love one another as we have conversations about the nature of the book of Revelation and what it teaches. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord God, as the one who sits on the throne, as the ancient of days, as the son of man. Help us to give you the glory, the praise, and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.